Before we get started with True House Stories and everybody's tuning in, I want to, today I got news from Bucks Music Publishing at Music Week, wrote about that I signed my worldwide publishing deal with Bucks Music Publishing. I wanted to thank everyone at Bucks for signing my catalog and helping us now to formulate True House Stories on its way. And as well, I want to thank Karen, who works with me, crazy to book everybody and is behind the scenes, Karen Ridley, and Manuel Genzel as well, and Shannon, and everybody else that took part in helping me put together this Bucks Music Publishing deal. It's a great moment. Thank you all again. Of course, you know, want to thank last week for Jazzy M. What a great story. And now we're in... October, and we are batting some heavy hitters. Welcome to True House Stories. I am Lenny Fontana, coming out of New York City, Nueva York. If it was Rome, it's where we rule the world, but we are not ruling the world anymore, at least not for disco and house music. Seems like Europe has that over our heads these days. But there was a time when New York radio and nightclubs set the the level and that level today is going to be brought to you by who we revere as one of our best that came out of the 80s he is humble he is a major actor but he was a incredible dj that was playing at some of the biggest clubs in the tri-state area and also teaching a generation of kids how to become that great DJ that he was at that time. He went on further and took his career from the DJ turntable to the studio, produced records. He was involved with many people in the house music scene. People like Blaze, Kevin Hedge, and Quark Records, and so many different record labels, plus himself as the producer writer. So it's funny how you see From the street level, someone takes themselves from the turntables and brings it to the records. And the rest of the world then learns who you are. I'd like to introduce and welcome to True House Stories, a true legend himself, Freddie Bastone. Freddie Bastone. I was always saying to myself, who are you talking about? (laughs) Everybody says that to me at the beginning of my show because I am still a fan of all of the guys because as much as I am in this this career like you have been, I still revere some of us as for the accomplishments that you've taken us through and being a trailblazer. But welcome to the show, and you are a true trailblazer in every way of the word. Um, Before we ask any questions, people always like to know how everyone's been coping with COVID. Freddie, can you tell us how you've been handling it for the last 18 months? Well, I got my two shots. Uh, I'm well, and everybody around me and my family is all good. But my my mother passed away during COVID um, uh, last year due to COVID. And so that was a big loss to me. Still is, and still get choked up talking about it. So I'll skip to the next subject. If you don't mind. We're sorry. We're sorry about that. Of course, we give you. Uh, it's never. I lost my mother almost two years now, so I understand. You never get over that. You right. Never. right. 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 
Yeah, it's it, it, it's it's. I'm finally starting to DJ again. Finally, getting some gigs here and there, um, but uh, it's not the way it was before COVID. Still not there. We're not there yet. We still got a little work yet. I know. Well, you know, until it's eradicated or really controlled, it still feels like it's you're still kind of battling, right? Everything. Yeah. I can't uh, listen. Everybody's up to do what they want to do with their life and whether they want to take the shot or not. But I just don't understand why you wouldn't. There's teachers that aren't taking the shot and losing their jobs. I'm just baffled by it. But you know, to each his own. I know. I know. Oh, you know what? We can only wish everyone the best. And in fact, you know, it's funny. Recently, I saw Merck, the drug company is coming out with the pill version. So maybe those that don't want to take the shot, maybe we'll take the pill. We'll see. We'll see. What makes the shot is scaring them. You think that's what it is? <laughs> I think so. I think those uh, hypochondriacs can't handle the deal with the shot. <laughs> or they or, you know, as I can say, hold on a second, everyone. Uh, wait a minute, the Kremlin is on. Yes? I mean, is it, I mean, I mean, am I radioactive? <laughs> I had no problems with it. I, I didn't feel sick. I didn't feel nothing, nothing. And, and then there's people that said they got cold sweats and fevers. And I was like, where are you from? I didn't get any of that. Were you okay? Yeah. Well, the only thing that happened to me was I got, I received a shot at 1130 in the morning at five o'clock. I had to go to bed because I was just so tired. That was the only thing that happened. 5 a.m., you mean? No, 5 p.m., like 11.30, 5, 6 hours later, I had to go lay down at dinner time. No, oh, I it was DJ hours. No, 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 no. This is the difference. I laid down at 5 o'clock. I said, oh, I got to go lay down. I got, this, is, this is too much. I just felt really tired. And then I was up at 1.30 in the, in the morning, and I said, I just felt this heaviness and I said, Jesus, if this is anything, a, a glimmer of what this thing really is, oh, I feel like that's, I just feel funky. Right. Next morning, perfectly fine. I went back to sleep, woke up. I just said, okay. Second shot, same thing. I got tired again. Some people told me they got the feeling of a flu feeling. But yeah, yeah some people had told me they had that feeling like they had the flu. Wow. Body aches. My one friend said to me, he felt like, Someone was giving him Charlie, like someone was punching his legs. So, you know, everybody's body's different. That's what I think with some people. They're just afraid of these effects. Yeah. Because there's really no, uh, no back data. There's nothing to go on. You know, we're the, we're the back data. Right, you know, right, right. What happens? I love, the, I love the New York commercials for the to get the, the to get the jab to get. Just take the shot. I want to kiss my mama and I kiss my grandchildren. You know, and I feel like they 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 were out. They stay outside the uh, the golden crust. <laughs> wait, wait, wait! Just go get shot. Get one hundred dollars. Exactly. This is what I mean. Wait a minute! I should have waited to take the shot, so I got to get the hundred dollars. They're paying you hundred dollars. People understand this. Listen to me, around the world. In New York City, they're giving you one hundred dollars to get vaccinated. And they're not doing that anywhere else. No, not out in Long Island. You're on your own. Go to CVS. Stop in. Oh, wow. I and thought it was all New York State. Oh, I think it was just New York City. They said, hey, go get the shot. <laughs> we'll give you $100. <laughs> hey, well, while you're at it, do me a favor. Can you wash my car? 
do my laundry, <laughs> give me a day's pay, and I'll go get the shot. Take care of everything. We'll take care of everything. See, no, all around town. There you go. Ah, whatever. You know what? We're still here. I had mine in April. I, I feel, thank God, so far, so good, but we'll see what happens. I'm not having more children, so I don't know if there's going to be an effect from this right. thing. Right. But, but who and knows? they said there's going to be another, you're going to need a booster shot, so. Yes, but, I'm not, but I'm not 66. Oh, is that, that's the case for that? So far, so far, the regulation is 65 or people who have major health issues that need it. Like if you have oh, cancer, okay. you're running, they want to get, they're not racing to give it th- uh, the boosters to everybody. Okay. Some people get the boost. Some people, some people, you know, who the frick knows? We don't know. <laughs> I had enough of this. Anyway, good enough for the COVID. COVID, shut it down tonight. COVID's over. Tomorrow we start partying. I mean, it's like, it's, you know, I'm watching everybody in the UK. I'm watching all the festivals. I'm seeing everybody's comfortable, relaxed, even the Brooklyn Mirage. Fully packed, thousands of people. It's like another Saturday afternoon. Are they wearing masks? No. Well, there you go. Yeah, you see, I'm saying, Freddie, they ain't wearing no masks. So they, when they walk in, they got to show their vaccination pass. That's it. Vaccination cards are ha- are checked. I had to do that the other night to go to a premiere to show it. I Me too. I have to get it laminated. That's what I. No, have. it's no good if it's laminated. No good. But get that. get the New York State wallet for the pass for your phone. New York State okay. wallet, and then you put in the things, and then all you do is show your phone. It's got a QC code, and they can boom pull it right from there. Oh, okay. Thank you. Well, so the public service messages. Public, public service messages are over. <laughs> Freddie Mustone, here we go. As I tell and ask everyone the same question, I will ask you in a very polite manner. How the hell did music find you at such a young age? How does it begin for you? Well, found me as a five-year-old, basically. My father was a jazz musician, a uh, drummer. And he worked at the Birdland Club as the house drummer. And um, so music was in my house constantly. I was constantly surrounded by it. And as I got older, my mother, because of she liked rock and roll also, infused the band Chicago into my brain and the Beatles. And as a little kid, I actually went to see Chicago on the third row at Carnegie Hall, I must have been seven, eight years old. And that was my first rock concert. And then we seen, I saw George Harrison and Bob Dylan at the Bangladesh concert in third row at Madison Square Garden. So I was pretty much infused with music as a, as a young kid. So it was in my blood. It was just in my blood. There's just no way for you to not get involved in it. Right. right. Although my children were surrounded by it and they have nothing to do with the music business. So. <laughs> there you go. But could you see yourself doing what your mom did, taking the kids at that age to sit down and see, say, Michael Jackson at the time or Rick James or whatever was he? Wow. You know, whatever the uh, artists are. Well, when when my son was young, I took my son to see Radiohead, and and he loved it. And so I I think that's a good way to get children into music, see live music, not just playing records. 
I mean, to actually see musicians playing is, is, an, is an influence to make somebody go to Sam Ash or, you know, guitar store or, or B&H to get a keyboard or a guitar. You know what I mean? You know, it's funny because I was walking my dog yesterday and I was thinking about this when we were all kids. And, and this probably happened to you too, being in the city. If you saw someone playing drums or something, it would stop you and you'd be mesmerized to just watch this, right? Right, right. It still does. I mean, I'm amazed at the, the, the talent that's on, on subways. On the subway systems, they have the New York bands. These, these, these people are very talented. They should be, you know, cutting records. I don't know if I was an A&R guy still. I would be going down there looking for talent because they're very talented people down there. I don't know. If they, I, I think they stopped from COVID. But uh, hopefully, it'll be coming back. Yeah. Well, that well, eventually, like everything, we'll get there. We'll get right. there. Right. 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 So, so your mom and your dad, and you, I know that I remember hearing that you said that in another interview that your father was um, a pro- proficient drum player. Was this? We used to go back and forth uh, playing. He used to play me his Buddy Rich records, and and Max Roach records. And I would play in my Led Zeppelin, John Bonham records and, and Queen records, you know, to show him that I know about music, too. He's a my drummer. You know what I mean? This is, this is what I'm listening to. What do you think? And he, funny thing about it, he loved John Bonham. Out of all the, or the, all the artists that I came up when I listening to music, he came in. He, he came into my room. He said, who's that? And Queen was that band. And Elvis Costello was another band that he loved. So, wow! I, I was happy when my father said, "I bless you with that." So I was like, "Oh, okay, I felt good." You know, it made me feel. It wasn't my father coming in and saying, "Shut that damn music off." It was more like, "Make that louder," you know. So, hear that poem. Play it again. Yeah. <laughs> like a musician would say, "Wait a minute, wait a minute. I heard something. Bring the record back. Lift right. the record. Play it again for me. I want to hear that part again." Right, right. Now, the, now, when it came to the, I, I, my first instrument that I bought was a guitar. Um, of course, drums, I found out by reading, you can't really make as much money as, as a young kid. I was like, you can't make money playing the drums? Me and as like the rest of the band, because the rest of the band writes music. So I was like, oh, I'm, I'm going to get a guitar, Dad, not, not, not drums. So he, he wanted me to get a saxophone, actually. And um, so I did guitar. Um, I play little keyboards, but guitar is my main thing. And um, But when it came time, like, for my freshman year in high school, I was still, you know, listening to rock and roll. But my, my thing to, to punk and, and disco came from, from this, if you can see it. Soul train. Soul! <laughs> Every Saturday morning, I'd watch that religiously, and, and that, you know, even though I was a rock and roll, I was, I was a closet soul train man, and <laughs> and I had my long hair, but I still um, was loving soul train. Don Cornelius was my man, you know, <laughs> and so. In 1979 came, and uh, my my best friend in high school, Marcus Quinones, invited me to his house, and he had two turntables, and I was just like, 
what the fuck is this? Excuse my language. And he showed me what he was doing and I was mesmerized. And I put my flying B guitar down and had my father, you know, for a birthday gift, get me two turntables at the time. He got me two pioneers and, and, and a new Mark mixer. And, um, and from there, that was 1910. I bought two, two of each because I wanted to know how to phase the records and double the records. So my first record that I bought was a clear copy, two clear copies of Rise, 1979, Herb Albert Rise. That was my first 12-inch that I bought. And then just, uh, you know, bought millions of records from there. But there was also another contributor to my disco um, bringing up there was a kid on the rock named uh james price jimmy price and he had these fast cars but for some reason the older kids liked me i was like the cool young kid that was like a class clown and they enjoyed me joined hanging out with me so jimmy used to pop by while i was playing football on the street and they'd get in the car and i get in this mg or triumph if you had the triumph and we go all the way up by orchard beach where you could ride real fast and he, he was playing Sarone at the time, Supernature. And the and the speakers were just blasting. I just remember, and also Barry White. And it was late at night. And I was, and my mother was very cool with me coming home late. And um, and just, I remember that hearing those beats saying like, this music is amazing. How, like Barry White, you know, you're my first, my last, my everything, and their own supernature in, in that car changed my whole idea about disco, you know, because rock and rollers weren't supposed to like disco. And and and, and it and it showed by other bands like the Stones and Queen and Rod Stewart and all these bands that I liked, they were putting out disco records at the same time. So I was like, so it must be cool. It must be all right to like this. So that's when I, you know, got the two turntables and from there just rocked out on my turntables and the guitar. Still played the guitar. Oh, really? And then just kept, kept, so you had the musical training and then you just, who, when you saw your friend Jimmy, was it Jimmy Page that actually had the setup or? No, Marcus Cronomis. When, when Marcus had the setup, did he show you the basics, any bass or you just picked yeah. it up? No, no, he showed me the basics. He showed me how to put two, two turntables together, phasing, doubling, echoing, you know, no, no tractor to do it. Just doing it on the two turntables, you know, doubling up the records, you know, like what, what people wouldn't even think about doing today. You know, yeah, I, I, when, even me on my tractor today, I do my doubles with my, with my tractor S4 and I don't, I don't phase with two turntables anymore. I do with the phaser. There's two, three phasers on the tractor. What am I going to do? But remember, you got to tell everybody there was no personal computers anywhere yet. There was no cell phones anywhere yet. This was pre-everything, even pre-the beeper, everything. It was, it was going right to vinyl, to the mixer, to the speakers. And from me, to the vinyl, to the mixer, to the speakers. That was it. Man-made. You know what I mean? And that was that was the cool thing about it. I mean, I still, to this day, want to go to a club where there's vinyl. 
where there's like three turntables and a, and a CD player and a reel-to-reel. That's really where I had my most fun, to tell you the truth. I really did. It's, it, 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 it still is fun playing on tractor, but it's, it's I guess maybe because the times have changed and the, the stadiums that I'm playing at and the clubs aren't as big as that, that I used to play. But the, the energy that coming from me to, you know, handling the turntables, riding the mix with my hand, you know, and making sure the beats what live drummers had to be on beat. That was a thing, you know, mixing two live drummers is, is a bitch. If you don't know what you're doing. I mean, you, you're just these, some young kids today might be like, fuck that. I'll just cut that. You know, but I wasn't, you know, Sarone was, was playing his drums and uh, on Don Ray's records and, 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 and Barry White's drummer was playing. He was a great drummer was playing those, those great beats and you had to mix them or else yeah, back then people would stop on the dance floor and give you a look. Now today I went to a couple of clubs last month, as I told you previously in our conversation and it seems like people just don't care if you mix or not. And I guess that's a sign of the times. It's pretty sad. Well, it's sad. that's because... Get old man, get off my grass. <laughs> because that's because... That's, you know why? Because that's because the music is playing a background part to the whole thing. Right. People are taking photos of themselves instead of dancing. It's really insane. Like, no, into dancing. They're into... You're into even on the dance wait. Wait, 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 wait. You remember back in the day, what was the sign that said? No cameras, no flash photography. Do you remember? Yeah. But you know what? I really, really wish that I took more pictures of myself in the clubs and in the DJ booth. I think I have two pictures of myself at Dan Sateri's DJ booth after all the years of playing there. I have two pictures at the Palladium after all the years of playing there. There's, there it is. That's the Palladium. There's Hippie Freddy playing at the Palladium. And that's Danceteria. That was a very cool booth, the Danceteria booth. It looked like a spaceship. I mean, it was like you could only see out of it. People, like, The Palladium booth was huge. And I guess we'll get into that stuff. But um, the, the, in those two places, reel-to-reel, mixers, both had Yuri mixers. Um, and the only thing about dance interior though, that many people don't know, we never had monitors in that booth. And I had to, I had to learn how to mix those records, you know, coming out of that booth. And in, in the, the speakers were about 20 yards away from me. So there would be guest DJs that would come in and be like, how do you do this? Well, what do you, how are we, how am I mixing this? I'm like, figure it out. <laughs> You're good. They fig- they figured if they were good enough, they figured it out. Like Danny Cribbit, I believe, played a couple of nights for uh, Mark, and he figured it out. Um, but if, if they didn't, right. they didn't know what they were doing. They they just would crash crash mix. And that's always a wonderful thing, crashing all night long, like the trucks and the cars and the dance floor, right? Crazy. That shows my love by Lolita Holloway. <laughs> bah, bah, bah. That's one record that Arthur Baker brought me. He used to bring me records all the time. 
because Shakedown was right up the block from Danceteria. And I remember him bringing me Crash Goes My Love. And he was like telling me the beats per minute. I was like, Arthur, the way this thing starts, I'm not mixing this. I'm banging this because it was like, bam, 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 bam. I'm using that, you know? And that became one of my favorite mixes of his. And it's one of his un- underrated mixes, I, I think. Um, I think it's a, it's a great Lolita song. And, um, but uh, John Roby used to come from Shakedown. I had so many people, so many great people came to dance Teria because, and bring me cassettes. I just did this in the studio, put it on. It'll go with this record. And I'm listening. It's not going to go with this shit at all. <laughs> it's, you're going to wait a half an hour until I work myself down to this or work myself up to this. You know, it's like, you know, people are very, yeah, yeah, it'll go with it. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about the dance floor. No, I'm worried about my dance floor. The way I played, was I played what I want and I was very blessed um, with the people that ran the clubs that I played at, at Danceteria. Um, well, just getting into Danceteria was, was like my conception into the music business, my conception into the world, basically. It, it really opened up so many doors. And the way that it happened was the stars aligned because I gave my cassette to Rudolph and John Argento. Rudolph was the manager and the socialite and the, the overseer of the Antiterium and many other clubs, Palladium, Mars. Well, I was going to say, he, he, these were party promoters that just had the right people. Oh, he, he didn't even have that. They didn't even have promoters back then. It was just them. Danceteria didn't have promoters. No, I'm so saying it's, they would be like the promoter in a sense, but they were in-house. Oh, these- yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he was amazing. And, and what happened was one night he told me his girlfriend just put on Diane Brill, who's a great designer, uh, still doing great designs, and and put on my cassette and said, I want this guy to play my birthday party. And I got a call from Rudolph and said, we listened to your your uh, tape and we want you to play. And this is the way Rudolph, it's a bad imitation of Rudolph, but it's my imitation of Rudolph. And it just so happened that Diane's birthday was my birthday. And I was like, I'm going to play Danceteria, my first mate, my first Manhattan club, really. I played tracks, but that was a small club. But to explain how important that crossing the bridge to come into the city was for a DJ. Oh, I mean, I was playing, I was playing teen clubs. I was playing teen discos. Um, and I was playing uh, in the Bronx and playing house parties and playing at high school dances. And then, and then I played at a place called Tracks in Manhattan, but it was a like a long bar. It wasn't even a club, but people were dancing. But then, I saw John Argento and Rudolph walking out, and I was going down there just one afternoon with my friend Michael, and I handed Rudolph the tape, and and I got a call three weeks later. And it was just, I mean, just thinking about it, like, it's my birthday, it's her birthday, she picked me. And from then on, I played every week. And, they, and I have to say, 
and this is not a diss to any of the DJs that danced here because they were all great, and especially Mark Caymans was one of my heroes. I have three three DJ heroes, and he was one of them. And because of not because of his mixing, but because of his balls, he had balls, and and I learned that from him. And um, and the I think when I went in there, I was mixing disco and rock and roll on beat and none of the other djs really were doing that there um so i think when they heard me they kind of said hey we better up our game and they and i and i think they they all did i mean there was a great dj there named bill bauman who used to play there on tuesday nights and friday nights and he did mostly he didn't play a lot of disco or house but played majority new wave. And he also played Tuesday nights at the Anvil. And Tuesday nights at the Anvil was, if you worked in a nightclub, you could come in for free. Girls, guys, everybody. That's the only night they let girls in. So I would go there and visit there. And I might be skipping over a lot of things, but it just comes into my mind right now. One night I was there and my friend Michael said to me, you know, Freddie, don't get crazy. Don't turn around too quick. But Freddie Mercury is right behind you. And this is when Freddie grew the mustache. He came out, you know, he, he didn't come out saying it, but you knew by the whole clone look that he was, you know, was, was sporting that, you know, this, he's, he's not going back anymore. This is, this is it. And, um, so I turned around, spoke to him. He wound up buying us at least eight rounds of drinks. And his friends that he was with were begging him to leave. And he was like, fuck off. I'm talking to my friend. And he just was blown away about how much I knew about Queen. And three years Later, he was sick, and Hollywood Records bought their catalog. They called me to do, because Lori, I forgot her last name, it escapes me right now. She was the A&R person. Um, she knew how much I was into Queen. She called me up to do their remixes. I did Seven Seas of Rye, Get Down, Make Love. Um, you Don't Fool Me, which Frank Murray, you know Frank Murray? He hired me to do that. I remember, um, I Frank. And they, they all went top 10, uh, Billboard. and the, But Freddie called me at the studio to tell me how much. I was at Unique Studios doing Frankie Goes to Hollywood. And he called me up to tell me how much he loved what I did with Seven, with seven Seas of Rye. And I was like, Freddie, um, I'm so happy you liked it. And I, was, I, I couldn't believe he was calling me at the studio. Um, and he said, well, Brian hates it, but fuck him. We're putting it out anyway, because I love it. Because it was, I, but what I did is I, it was house, but I took a lot of guitar riffs from Brian so he wouldn't get mad, but from other Queen records to make it rock. And, 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 and I was surprised that he didn't like it. But he was like, Roger and me like it, and it's going out. And, and I said, Freddie, you don't, you might not remember, but we've met. And he goes, oh, yeah, really? Where? And I said, the anvil. And it was complete silence. So he might have thought 
that we met downstairs where there was a lot of mumbo jumbo going on down there. I don't know what you mean. The key, but in, the, in the catacombs area where darkness, said <laughs> about darkness. It was like it was like going into a bat house. It was that dark. If you went down there, it was like as soon as you went down there, you were grabbed. And it was like so. I was like, Freddie, no, 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 no. Please search for part two of this podcast on the platform you're watching or listening to. And please do not forget to follow us.